Let's bow our heads. Let's have a a word of prayer before we get into our study uh, today. So please uh, bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together here uh, to worship thee in spirit and in truth. And Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit uh, to uh, cleanse us from our unrighteousness as we ask forgiveness and claim the blood of Jesus. We ask for the Holy Spirit to give us discernment and uh, to change our hearts into hearts of flesh and uh, help us to see the truth, uh, to fall in love with the truth. And if we are in love with the truth, increase our love for it. For we know the Bible says that Jesus is, is the truth and we, we want to love Jesus even more than we did uh, this morning. And so please uh, send the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and our hearts. Uh, help us to understand the truth and Lord to share Uh, the love of the truth with those around us, our families and um, our neighbors and and the world. And Father, we lift up before you uh, Kyle Brown's father, Kenny. We pray that you'll be very near to him. He's in the hospital uh, trying to uh, diagnose what really is the cause of his illness. We pray that you'll be very near to him and the whole family and all the friends, uh, Father, and encourage them with good news. Uh, We pray for Susan's mother, Beverly, that uh, you will heal her continue to heal her, uh, and also that she may come to know Thee, the true God. Uh, We pray for those who have lost loved ones, especially those who lost them suddenly in these attacks a few days ago. And we pray for our country, Lord. We know what prophecy says, but we still pray that uh, You will bless this nation, that uh, we will have still have an opportunity, a moment, to get the truth out before probation closes. Please be with me as I give this message today. Give me the words to speak. And I thank you for Jesus, especially for Jesus. And pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, in our, our studies in the last three months or so, something like that, we basically have touched on all the, the foundational Bible pillars, you know, that the devil especially has attacked and made counterfeits of uh, in order to deceive the world and, and to be able to hold them into his, his end-time church as long as he can and until probation closes so they may be lost souls. Um, and uh, today we're going, to, we're going to talk about uh, what I've entitled the unquenchable fire. The unquenchable fire. In a previous study, we, we learned that the dead sleep in their graves until Jesus resurrects them. Um, and, and if you've noticed in our, our, our studies and, and the talks, uh, one uh, builds upon another or they come together. They, they, there's none that contradict. And that's a key when you study the Bible. If you come across the contradiction then you need to kind of step back and say, hey, have I, have I studied this correctly? Um, pray about it. Study it a little bit more because the Bible will explain itself. It will explain itself. And so far I hope that you've seen that, uh, that it has indeed explained itself. Um, and so we studied about what happens when you die. Uh, when the righteous are resurrected, they'll go to heaven. This is called the first resurrection, the Bible says. When the wicked are resurrected, they'll go to the lake of everlasting fire, the Bible says. And this is the second resurrection uh, at the end of the thousand years, as you read about in Revelation chapter 20. And uh, we'll talk about that, I think, maybe a little bit next week. Uh, yet the question arises, and, and really rightly so, uh, because we are created as intelligent beings, most of us, right, Mitch? <laughs> Sometimes we may wonder about our fellow human being or not, but, but we are. We've been uh, created with brains, use uh, a brain. And so questions do arise, and they're good questions. Uh, when you think about uh, hell, hellfire, um, and I get this quite a lot, actually, when I talk about this subject, uh, People ask, how could a God of love torture the wicked forever in a lake of fire? And, and that is a good question, isn't it? Because you read certain things in the Bible, it just doesn't make sense that God would do that. It seems inconsistent with his character. 
And as I've said to you before, the difference between good and evil comes down to what one believes about the character of God. Satan believed God to be unfair, that he made laws that could not be kept. And so Satan brought uh, this attack upon the character of God. He's brought it to our planet, and frankly, it's being echoed from too many Christian pulpits and has been for a long time. And one of these attacks concerns this concept of an eternally burning place called hell where the unsaved will spend eternity. You see, what motivates you to obey God? That's really the bottom line, isn't it? Is, is it fear that motivates you? You're afraid of being punished? You're afraid of... Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes God will use fear in such a way or allow it. I don't know that he will use it. But he will allow it to get people's attention at times. And if it, it, and usually when he does that, he does it in such a way to draw us to him and to his word to find the truth. Okay? And, and, uh, but what is it that motivates us? Is it fear of uh, punishment? Or is it uh, that we may gain a reward? Or is it because we love God for what He has done and and not only done for us, but the type of person He is? He's lovable. Have you ever met somebody you just, that person's just a lovable person. You can't help but love that person. That's who Jesus is. Mitchell. Yeah, Mitchell. You just can't help but love Mitchell. He's a lovable guy, as far as I know. No, he's a lovable guy. And so, you know, what is it that motivates uh, some of these preachers? They, they use hellfire. Have you ever heard a, you know, a fire and brimstone sermon? Well, you haven't heard one from me, but, you know, that's trying to bring the fear of God into somebody, right? You know, well, that's going to motivate people to serve God out of fear, not from their hearts, see? But the Bible declares that God is love. The, the Greek word agape is the word that's used when describing God. It means an unselfish charity. It means that he's always looking out for the other person's best interest. He loves them enough to put aside everything for their benefit. That's remarkable. I don't think we truly completely understand it. I mean, we're not God, so I don't know that we will ever completely understand God, but... Um, but any being that would have creatures eternally tormented by burning in such a place, I think would be anything but agape, wouldn't you? Uh, and in this study, we're going to find the eternal truth of the matter, and hopefully we'll understand the love of God a little bit better today than we did yesterday. Uh, one of the most theologically confused subjects in the Bible is that of hell. I've seen all kinds of different ideas about it. Uh, it's been fumbled by the clergy. It's been distorted uh, by laity uh, until the word has become basically a curse word when you see the word hell. People use it mostly as a curse word, don't they? Uh, everywhere people are asking, though, the same question. What and where is hell? Uh, what is the fate of the wicked, really? Uh, will a God of love torture people throughout eternity? What's the Bible say? Will the, will the fire of hell ever burn the wickedness out of sinners? Now we get into some of the Catholic ideas of it. You know, um, These are questions which deserve an answer from the Bible. And does the Bible have an answer? It does. The Bible has answers. Um, because if we don't understand it, this subject really, it, it can be very discouraging to us. And to others, and I think it's discouraging to probably, it could be millions of people around the world. They don't want to talk about that, especially in our culture today where, you know, you have to tolerate everything. This has to be a big discouragement. Nobody wants to hear about hell, <laughs> right? So we do need to understand, first of all, when we get into this subject, that there is a heaven to win and there is a hell to shun. Have you heard that expression before? Jesus taught that every soul will uh, either be saved or be lost. 
That's what he taught. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral place. And there are no uh, second prizes, you know. There's not a first place, second place, third place, Mitch. It's, <laughs> there's just one, right? In Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, we'll start there. It says, The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. What is iniquity? Iniquity is an open rebellion. You see, because there are some sins that we may commit that we're ignorant of. Technically, it's still a sin. But because we're ignorant of it, God winks at that. He says, I'm, and, and that shows something about the character of God too, doesn't it? He said, you know, it's, it'd be unfair for me to punish you for that because you did it unknowingly. But iniquity is committing sin knowingly. Okay? And he says, says here that uh, these angels, he's going to send forth the angels, they're going to gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Is that something interesting? You've come across that before if you've read in the Gospels. Jesus says that. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. What do you think he means by that? Pay attention. Pay attention. This is very important. That's what he means. Listen to what I'm saying and pay attention to it. And so... In view of these two ultimate destinies for all who've ever been born, how earnest I think we should be in seeking to find the right way, to find uh, the truth of this matter. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, didn't he? And so we want to follow the truth. We want to follow Jesus. The only absolute safety for anybody is to take exactly what Jesus taught about hell, as with all other subjects. Um, his doctrine is the only one which is dependable. It's the only one that's true because he is the truth. He said some will be cast into the fire and some will shine forth in the kingdom. Right there, that gives us a, a pretty good idea, doesn't it? But amazingly, Jesus has been charged by many religious leaders uh, with teaching untruth or falsehood about this subject although he's been very plain about it. They've accused him of teaching that an immortal soul flies away from the body at death to either heaven or to hell, or in, in, in some, to purgatory, until they're either prayed out or bought out, or earned it. Um, but that's not what Jesus taught at all. He never gave the least intimation that some disembodied soul separates from the body at the time of death. And he didn't uh, ever give the impression that the wicked suffer eternal torment as soon as they die either. He never said that. Let's get a sample of what Jesus really taught on this subject of hell. We'll go to Mark chapter 9 and verse 43. Jesus said, and If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into where? Hell. That's kind of interesting. When you look at these words, uh, actually it's proof, there shouldn't be any, any uh, doubt about this, that it is the body which goes into the fire, not some mystical soul. Jesus said, than having two hands to go into hell. That's not spirit, is it? That's hands. That's your hands. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, he said, If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. That means hands, feet, eyes, all the other members of the physical body, when he says the whole body. And in contrast to the doctrine of Christ, pulpits today, and for many years, I mean, they shout with dramatic portrayals of these imaginary souls that, that uh, leave the body at death. I mean, there's movies based upon it and television shows today. 
these these imaginary souls leave the body. I mean, they have no, no substance, no shape. They're like a, a mist or something, you know. Like fog. What's that? Fog. Yeah, like fog. Yeah, like the fog we had today, <laughs> this morning, you know. Um, but this is totally contrary to what Jesus taught. He spelled it out repeatedly in the Gospels. Those who are cast into the fire of hell will go there with hands, they'll go there with their feet, with their eyes, all the physical features of their body. They will not go in some uh, state of formless spirit or soul. The first important fact about hell is this. I'm going to cover three or four. And we learned this when we studied what the Bible says about death. Uh, the unsaved do not go to any place of punishment as soon as they die. The Bible says that they are reserved in the grave until the day of judgment to be punished. And Jesus, he explicitly taught this. Um, he taught it, for example, in the parable of the wheat and the tares. You remember that parable, the wheat and the tares? After the householder had sown the wheat in the field, what happened? A servant comes and he reports that there's tares growing among the grain. And who put the tares there? It was the enemy. It was the devil. Uh, his question was whether he should pull up those weeds, those tares, while they were still very small. And uh, uh, the householder's answer is found in Matthew chapter 13, which we began our study with, essentially. Look at verse 29. It says, Nay! Lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to what? Burn them, exactly, to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn, he says. Now follow the words of Christ as he explains the meaning of the parable. You go to verse 37 there in Matthew chapter 13. He says, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, like Russ said. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and this is what we read earlier, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now he said the tares represented the wicked people, and that they would be cast into the fire when? At the end of the world. At the end of the world. That's what he said. It, it wasn't when they died, was it? He said at the end of the world. It was in the harvest that the separation was going to take place. And he, he said the harvest is at the end of the world. Um, how can anyone really misconstrue that? I, I'm just dumbfounded by that. I mean, it, it's amazing to me that people get, get that. What's that? They don't use that text. Oh, of course they don't use the text. I mean, uh, but the whole idea of the wicked going into the fire at the time of death contradicts the specific teaching here of Jesus that they would be cast in the fire at the end of the world. And this is just one of many places. Um, and so, I mean, since the judgment also takes place after Christ comes, we can see how impossible it would be for anyone to be punished before that time. Would that be fair? Justice demands that a person be brought into judgment before being punished. you agree with that? We don't kill first and then ask questions, right? I mean, you've seen in some of the old Westerns. I mean, I grew up with Westerns, um, influenced by my dad. My dad read all these books of Westerns and stuff. And there was always that shoot first, ask questions later, you know, in a lot of the Westerns. But we don't do that, do we? That's not fair, is it? Um, we don't kill first and ask questions, though some may want to do that. In fact, today we have certain agencies in this country that actually will do that with those they suspect of being a terrorist. They can just about name anybody as a terrorist and throw you into a room and lock a key and never come back to see you. 
Did you know that? Did you know that Christians are on that list? They have a pretty long list of who to look out for. But most people recognize that that's not fair. That's not just. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter declared, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. That's what Peter said. That makes sense, doesn't it? Suppose a man should be brought into the court accused of stealing and the judge said, okay, put him away for 10 years. Mitch, I caught you stealing some gum. We're going to put you in prison for 10 years and then after 10 years we're going to bring you out and you're going to have your trial. How would that sound? That judge should be removed from the bench because he doesn't have the right idea about what fairness is, does he? Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says this of God. It says, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. God's not going to be guilty of such injustice. And praise Him for that. So if we let the Bible mean what it says, there can be no doubt on this point. The wicked are reserved until when? Till the day of judgment, right? The end of the world, the day of judgment. To be what? To be punished. This means they can't be punished before that judgment day. Does the Bible tell where they are reserved until then? Yes, Yes, it does. Let's look at John chapter 5. Christ himself said in John 5 verse 28, he said, marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Essentially, the good and righteous and the wicked are going to be resurrected, aren't they? That's very plain, actually. Um, I think sometimes the Bible is so plain. People, we we get such traditional ideas in our head and and we read something in the Bible and I've had this happen and I've I've shown people things. Maybe you have too, Russ. You've shown people, people don't believe it's in the Bible. And then you show them and they're astonished. They're astonished. Yeah, and then it goes to that. Well, that's your interpretation. All I did was show it to you. You can read it. Nothing, <laughs> right? Read it in context, even. It's just, it's just remarkable. But that's very plain. It's very plain. And uh, uh, Jesus said that both the good and the bad are going to come forth from their graves to receive either life or they're going to receive damnation. And that, that proves that from the time of death until they come forth in the resurrection, they're not receiving any punishment or reward. Well, what's that tell you about hell? You're starting to see? See, it all happens after they come forth. They're reserved until that day, just as Peter had indicated. But Christ spelled out where they will be reserved until that time. He said they're going to be in the graves until they're resurrected. And if plainer words are needed, listen to this. Jesus said this in Luke 14, verse 14. Thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Or in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward. When? And then. Isn't that what it says? And then He shall reward every man according to His works. When is then? When He comes with His angels. That's what He said. So no reward is handed out until the resurrection of the just when He comes with all the angels. And friends, these things, I mean, it's very plain. It's, there's no controversy over this. Um, taken in their context, they contain no ambiguity, no hidden meanings. They're not parables. It's the plain truth. Again, Christ is quoted in the very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22 and verse 12. He said, and behold, I come quickly and my reward is been going on since... Before time. No, he didn't say that, did he? And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And so here he he reminds us that every man, every person, is what he's saying, will receive his just reward when he returns to the earth. Job 12, verse 30, Job declares that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. 
They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. Daniel wrote, Daniel 12, verse 2, that they which sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Friends, can there be any doubt where the wicked are reserved before facing you know, resurrection and judgment and punishment? I could go on and on and on just to show Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. But we have the testimony so far. We have Peter, Daniel, Job, Jesus himself. I mean, how many more do we need? I don't think there's any room for any doubt about that. They're reserved in the grave. Now we come to the second great fact about hell. None of the unsaved will be cast into hellfire until after the second coming of Jesus at the end of the world. Although we've, we have already seen uh, evidence on this point, I want to look at it again, look even more really. Um, describing the punishment of the wicked, in Revelation 21 and verse 8, John wrote, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. That's a pretty good list there, isn't it? Are there any good people there? <laughs> He's not saying the righteous, you know. He says, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It doesn't say second dying. It says second death. So here the lost are pictured in the the fires of hell, suffering the punishment for their sins. And what is that punishment? The second death. That's what John said. It's the second death. Do you realize what this proves about the wicked? It proves they're not going to be cast into the lake of fire until after the resurrection takes place. So when they die, they don't go straight to that lake of fire. There's no lake of fire under the earth somewhere in the center of the earth or wherever. These people die the second death in the fire, but they cannot suffer a second death until they get what? A second life. They lived the first life in this world and died the first death going into the grave. That's what the Bible says. And before they can die a second death, what has to happen? Resurrection. They have to be resurrected. They must be given a second life. And this, of course, is what happens at the end of the world. Jesus said, all that are in the graves shall come forth. That's what Jesus said. Now, after getting that second life in the resurrection, the wicked will be punished for their sins in hellfire, which John said is the second death. So they get a second life, and then they get a second death. And by the way, that second death is final. It's an eternal death from which there will be no resurrection. But the point to be noted is the time of this hellfire punishment. It is after the resurrection at the end of the world. It does not take place at the time of the first death. As, I mean, so many, probably millions of people believe. Does the Bible tell us how the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire? Yes, it does. John describes this event that takes place at the close of the millennium after the thousand years. You go to Revelation chapter 20, you begin with verse 7. I'm going to have to speed along here. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and burns them for all eternity. That's not what the Bible says there. It says, and devoured them. So here at the end of the thousand years, all the wicked people who've ever lived will come forth in the second resurrection. And after describing how the righteous are going to come to life and reign with Christ... During the thousand years, John writes in verse 5, there in Revelation 20, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And the rest of the dead, of course, they had to be the wicked. And their resurrection will provide opportunity, you see, for Satan to take up his battle against God and the saints. He goes out to gather all the host of all those lost people who've been raised from the dead. And he has, he has people 
to deceive again, doesn't he? Because he spends a thousand years pretty much just him and his angels. That's it. And so he has somebody to deceive and he convinces them that they can prevail against the new city, the new Jerusalem, which is descended from God out of heaven. You read that in Revelation 21. Uh, And as they march up, they encompass the city we read there. The wicked are then cut down by that devouring fire which rains upon them from heaven and they are destroyed, never to live again. This is, friends, this is the hellfire which is the final punishment for sin. And the Bible clearly asserts that this fire devours the wicked right here on the breadth of the earth, it said. Not down below the surface somewhere. That answers some questions. Every Bible writer who speaks on the subject of hell, and check me out on this, friends, adds new insight on this second death of the wicked. It's a pretty interesting study, actually. In 2 Peter 3, verse 7, Peter says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now... By the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's what Peter says. And then he goes on to describe the day of the Lord, which will melt the very elements with fervent heat. The language of... By the way, it's very interesting if you, for you chemists out there. What is it? There's, there's a certain percentage of nitrogen in the air. And if, if you were to change that nitrogen just a little bit, boom, nothing but fire. And that's all around the world. So God being someone who can speak things into existence would just have to change the air a little bit and the whole world's on fire. Every element will burn with fur and heat. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable, really. A remarkable thought. But the language of Peter is very explicit about the place of punishment for the wicked, the ungodly. He says this earth is reserved for that fire which will bring judgment and perdition to the wicked. Their punishment is going to be here, is what he's saying. Isaiah 34 and uh, verse 8 says, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into brimstone and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. You know what pitch is? Tar, you know, roof cement. Have you ever had to use roof cement? That's pitch. You know, it's very flammable. And so he says it'll become burning pitch. And so the prophet here, he portrays the entire planet enveloped in this fire. Even the the streams and the dust are transformed into uh, combustion of pitch and brimstone. And uh, that's what Isaiah says. David adds... Uh, these words in Psalms 11 and verse 6. He says, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. That's pretty interesting in view of looking at the three angels' messages, you know, because the wicked drink the cup of God's indignation. Right? And here, uh, David's saying, That shall be the portion of their cup. It's rather interesting. Um, because he uses almost the same words as John and Peter in describing. In fact, that probably was an influence on them. They knew the Psalms. so. Uh, but all agree as to the place of the punishment. Um, that's going to be this earth. Uh, and the agent God's going to use for punishment. Is there going to be a worldwide flood ever again? No. It's going to be fire. God promised never to flood the earth again. And every time it rains, you see a rainbow. What's that tell you? It's not going to flood again. That was God's sign of the promise that He would never flood the earth again. And so when you see a rainbow, you know God still exists. <laughs> and He still holds to His promises. And so, uh, understanding this, this brings us to our third fact about the subject of hell. Hell as a place of punishment will be this earth turned into a lake of fire at the day of judgment. But this also raises some other very interesting questions about the fate of the lost. One of the most um, puzzling questions has to do with the length of punishment. How long will the wicked continue to live and suffer in that fire? Um, Well, no one can answer that question precisely because the Bible says they'll be punished according to their works. That's what it says. 
This means there's going to be degrees of punishment, but we don't know really the length of that punishment. Some, some are going to suffer longer than others. But one thing that we can say with certainty is that the wicked won't live in that fire throughout eternity. I kind of look at it this way. Um, you know, the Bible talks about when we, when we develop habits of sin, we become hardened to God. Our heart becomes hardened. Have you read that before? You know, and I kind of look at it like, uh, you know, and in other places the Bible describes in symbolic ways that people are like trees. Isn't that interesting? And so that got me to thinking, well, you know, it's interesting because in trees you have some that are soft wood, don't you? And you have some that are that that are hardwoods, very hardwoods. Um, English oak, probably one of the hardest woods in the in the world. Now, we heat our home with wood, and and we don't. I don't like to use soft woods because they burn, like Russ just said, they burn right up real fast. But you get a hardwood in there, and it'll burn for a long time, and it produces a hotter heat. And so I kind of look at it like this: the, the the more people are hardened in sin, the longer they probably will burn, kind of like wood. That's not saying they're going to burn for days and days or minutes and minutes or hour, whatever it is, you know. Who, who's going to burn the longest, do you suppose? Satan. Satan. That would tell me that he, his heart is hardened more than anybody in existence. You know? That's kind of how I, I look at this, this question and, and try to explain it uh, to people. It seems to, to make sense. Uh, we don't know how long... But we know that they're not going to burn throughout eternity. And that's the key. Uh, there are several reasons for being sure about it. First of all, this earth is also declared to be what? The final home of the righteous. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, He said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Inherit the earth. And Peter, after describing this earth, exploding and burning with a great noise, saw a new heaven filled with righteousness. 2 Peter 3 and verse 13, he says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So the wicked can't live, uh, continue to live in this planet because it's been specifically promised to who? To the righteous. Abraham's spiritual seed, according to Romans 4.13. Uh, after being purged of all the curse of sin, it will revert to the first dominion. Paul talks about, and to God's original plan for it. It'll be finally what God intended it to be, a perfect home for a perfect people. That's what, what originally it was supposed to be. And God's going to go back to that. In the second place, the wicked can't uh, continue to live in this earth because they have never trusted Christ for eternal life. It's only the righteous who receive the gift of eternal life. What is it? Do you guys know John 3.16? Have you ever heard of John 3.16? What's it say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not, what? Perish. Perish. Right? But what about those who don't believe in Him? They surely will perish. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, we know this, the wages of sin is... Death. It doesn't say the wages of sin is dying eternally in a you know eternal torment of hell. It doesn't say that. So please don't miss the, the simplicity of these verses. The wicked are never promised life. They are promised death. They're promised eternal death. And only the righteous are promised eternal life. And there's only one way to get life without end, isn't there? And that is through faith in Jesus. John describes it this way, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. But then in the back of your minds, when you think about somebody living for eternity, whether in a supposed burning hell or right, you know, a reward in, in the New Jerusalem, that's still eternal life, isn't it? But if you don't have the Son, you have not life, it says. So let me ask you a question. We looked at this, what John says. Do those wicked ones in the lake of fire have the Son of God? Yes. 
Well, of course not. Then how could they have life, even an eternal punishing life? John says in 1 John 3.15, You know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Will those murderers in hellfire continue to have life for eternity? No. It would be the rankest heresy to believe that eternal life could be obtained from some other source than Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, regardless of what Joel Osteen says, there's only one way to eternal life, and that's through Jesus Christ. Satan has been peddling that lie, you see, from the beginning that you can live without God. If you could, where would the wicked get it? That's kind of the evolutionist thinking, isn't it, Russ? All of a sudden there was a spark of energy. It came from nowhere. They can't figure it out, but it had to have happened, right? Paul Paul said, well, from all this slime, you know. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Paul said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. This text I just read, it It speaks of a certain point in time when the righteous will be instantly changed into immortal beings. That time's still future, isn't it? Is anybody here right here, are they immortal? You have to be faithful, don't you? It's still future. It occurs when Jesus returns at the last trumpet sound, when the resurrection uh, of those sleeping in Christ takes place. Nowhere in the Bible do we read of the wicked being changed in this manner. You don't read it. You can't find it anywhere. And it's precisely because they never received this gift of eternal life that they are unable to keep living in the lake of fire. What flesh could live in a lake of fire? It's inconceivable. I've heard that word before. Inconceivable and unreasonable to fabricate such an event. It's contrary to what the Bible says. It's repugnant, really, to even our common sense. Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 18.4, he said, The soul that sinneth, it shall live forever in a lake of fire. Well, that's not what Ezekiel said. He said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so, I mean, no matter what we may understand a soul to be, You can debate that all you want. Let's just accept this simple Bible fact that it can die and it will die as a result of sin. Can we agree to that? I don't care what you believe about a soul. It can die. That's what the Bible says. We just read it. If the wicked live eternally in the fire, then they have the same thing as the righteous, except they're in a different place and different circumstances, of course. But it'd still be life, wouldn't it? Who could give them eternal life but Jesus Christ? I think John 3.16 really settles that so clearly. Those who do not believe in the only begotten Son are going to perish. They'll die. They will die the second death, an eternal death from which they're never going to be raised. That death is never going to end. It is an endless, eternal punishment because it's an endless, eternal death. Here's a question I get quite often when speaking on this subject. What about the unquenchable fire that burns the wicked? Doesn't that mean it never goes out? You ever get that? What's unquenchable? Well, of course it doesn't. To quench means to extinguish or to put out. No one will be able to put that fire of hell out. That's the strange fire of God that the Bible talks about. His strange act. No one will be able to escape from it being by extinguishing it. You know, they're going to be burning, and somebody says, "Oh, look, I got a fire extinguisher." They turn the fire extinguisher. That's not going to put it out, right? 
In Isaiah 47, Isaiah says of that fire, he says, Behold, they shall be as stubble, the fire shall burn them, they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. They shall what? Not deliver themselves. That's what Isaiah says. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor a fire to sit before it. That's interesting, isn't it? So after it has accomplished its work of destruction, that fire will go out. Yeah. No one can deliver themselves from its flame by putting it out, but finally not a coal will be left. This is what Isaiah is saying. Jeremiah prophesied that Jerusalem would burn with a fire that could not be quenched, Jeremiah 17. But it burned down to ashes, didn't it, Russ? You can read, read those verses and see how the Bible uses the word quench. It doesn't mean a fire that will never go out. It only means what it says, unquenchable. It can be quenched. Excuse me, it can't be quenched if it's unquenchable. It can't be quenched. While it is burning, you won't be able to extinguish it until it's finished burning all that fuels it. That's just like a natural law. You have a campfire, it eventually will burn out, won't it, when the fuel runs out, right? It's not done continually burn. And what can we say about the expressions eternal and everlasting which are used to describe the fires of hell? Well, there is absolutely no confusion or contradiction when we let the Bible uh, define these terms. Many make the mistake of applying modern definitions to biblical words without reference to the, the context, the ancient context, the ancient usage. And that violates one of the most fundamental rules of biblical interpretation, by the way. Uh, the fact is that eternal fire does not mean a fire that will never go out. The same expression is used in Jude 7 concerning the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude 7 says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Well, it's quite obvious that Sodom is still not burning today. Isn't that pretty obvious? The Dead Sea actually covers the place where those cities once stood. There's a reason why it's called the Dead Sea. Do you know why it's called the Dead Sea? It's so saturated with salt, nothing will grow. Yet... They burned, these cities burned with eternal fire and we're told that it was an example of something. What is it an example of? Second Peter 2 verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. This is what's going to happen to you if you continue to live ungodly. That eternal fire which brought Sodom to ashes is an example of what will finally happen to the wicked after the thousand years we read about there in Revelation 20. Uh, the same kind of fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah will also burn the wicked in the lake of fire until they become ashes. And that point, uh, there is nothing else. To, I mean, at that point, there's nothing else to burn, see? So the fire goes out. Malachi chapter 4, that's what we read. Verse 1, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. They're going to be ashes, not eternally burning. So no words of any language can make it more forceful or clear, I don't believe. How consistent the whole picture appears of all these scriptures I'm sharing with you. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem consistent? No contradiction? The Bible is ex really explaining itself. Yet those who have been prejudiced by you know, tradition can read those words, burn them up, they shall be ashes, and still insist that the wicked are alive and suffering in hell. It's amazing to me. Amazing. I'll tell you that there are some ambiguous verses on this subject, but we are finding that they all harmonize when the context is considered and the Bible is allowed to explain itself. 
Even Christ's words in Matthew 25, 46 are not confusing when we take the obvious meaning. He said, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. When we look at what I just shared with you and we read that, it makes sense to us. We understand what he's saying. Many people get troubled over the expression what Russ just said, everlasting punishment. But notice that it doesn't say everlasting punishing. Whatever the punishment is, the result will last eternally, but the punishment comes to an end, friends. Does the Bible tell us what the punishment is? Well, of course. We read it in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. So, that's the punishment. Paul simplifies it further with these words in 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 7, he says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So the punishment is everlasting destruction or a destruction that is everlasting, essentially is what Paul's saying. So from it there will be no resurrection. There's not going to be any hope for life, eternal life. But what about that worm? You know what worm I'm talking about? That worm which dieth not. Many have read these words of Jesus about hell and they say, there it is! That's it! That worm doesn't die, so neither do those burning in hell. It's amazing to me. Well, let's read it. Let's look at the short context. Mark chapter 9, verse 45. Jesus speaking, he says, And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. We've heard that before, haven't we? Cut it off. It's better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Well, we understand what quenched means. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Some have interpreted the worm. Miraculous to me how they do this. They interpret the worm to be the soul. There's no justification for it. I mean, is that what Jesus meant here? Nowhere in the Bible is there any allusion to the soul as a worm. Nowhere. It's pluck it out. Worms clean up the mask after everything. Exactly. In this instance, Jesus used the word Gehenna for the word hell. And it so happened that Gehenna was an actual place of burning that was just outside the walls of Jerusalem. It was like the garbage dump. I have no doubt that Christ's listeners could see that smoke. Probably smelled it too. Pretty nasty. Uh, But they could see it curling up from the valley of Gehenna where dead bodies and garbage were constantly being burned. And if anything fell outside the flames, it was quickly consumed by maggots or worms. So, with such a vivid scene of just utter extinction before their eyes, Jesus, as He usually did, uses as an example, you see, He used the Gehenna fire uh, as an example of the complete destruction of hellfire. The fire was never quenched. And the worms were constantly at work upon the bodies. It was a picture of total destruction. That's what he was saying. None of those bodies, this is what gets me, none of those bodies in Gehenna were living. They were all dead. So, you know, it's not like they were eternally burning. They were alive and eternally burning. No, they were dead and they were burning. And they were being consumed by the fire And if they escaped the fire, the worms and maggots, they decomposed, they were eaten. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And then we read that. Perhaps the most easily misconstrued text about hell is John's allusion to the smoke ascending forever and, and ever. And for those who are unfamiliar with other uses of this phrase in the Bible, it can be confusing. But a comparison of verses in both the Old and New Testaments reveal that the words forever are used 57 times in the King James Version Bible. 
They're used 57 times in reference to something that has already come to an end. 57 times used to, to, in reference to something that has already ended. That ought to tell us something. In other words, forever does not always mean without end. And I could give several examples, but let's look at just two for now. In Exodus 21, the conditions are laid down concerning the law of servitude. If a servant chose to continue serving the master he loved rather than his freedom when it came due, then his ear was to be pierced with an awl, and the scripture says he shall serve him forever. That's Exodus 21 verse 6. But how long would that servant serve his human master? Would it be forever? Did he have eternal life? No. He served only as long as he lived, of course. So the words forever did not mean without end, see. Um, Here's another one. Hannah took her son Samuel to God's temple where he would there abide forever, says in 1 Samuel 1.22. Yet verse 28, it says, as long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. It seems like a contradiction. Not really. It's not. The original meaning of the term forever indicates an indefinite period of time. Generally, it defines a period of time in which something can continue to exist under the, the circumstances that, that happen, you know, that are prevailing. Even Jonah's stay in the whale's belly is described by him as forever. I mean, we use the term the same today, don't we? I was stuck in traffic forever. It doesn't mean without end, does it? Am I still there? Yeah, am I still there? I followed that guy pulling that bales of hay forever. Seemed like. <laughs> Someone may say that this could also limit the life of the righteous in heaven because they're described as glorifying God forever. But the terms are the same for both the saved and the lost. But there, there's one tremendous difference in those circumstances, though, see. The saints have received the gift of immortality, so their life now measures with the life of God, who's immortal. Immortal. Immortality means not subject to death. That's what it means. So the words forever used in reference to them uh, could only mean without end because they are immortal. But when forever is used to describe the wicked, we're talking about mortal creatures who die. Their forever is only as long as their mortal nature can survive in the fire, which punishes them according to their works. And so this brings us to the final fact Uh, concerning the fate of the wicked. After the unsaved are punished according to their sins, they will be wiped out of existence, both body and soul. And, And Jesus states it very simply in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so in the light of all that we've read, everything we've looked at, how can anybody continue to claim immortality for the wicked? I mean, that really. Jesus, the only one who can bestow the gift of life, rejects the possibility that those in hell can continue to live in any form whatsoever. The life will be snuffed out for eternity and the body will be annihilated in the flames. The psalmist wrote in Psalms 37, 20, he said, but the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke shall they consume away. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Um, Psalms 37, verse 10, for yet a little while and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place and it shall not be. The most powerful Definitive words in human language are used to describe the destruction in hell, but people still insist that the writers don't really mean what their words say. Destroy, consume, burn up, devour, death. I mean, do these words have some mysterious opposite meaning in the Bible than they have in other books? (laughs) Well, we really have no reason to think so. The fact is that theology has made an ogre out of our God of love. He's been portrayed as more cruel than Hitler. Even though Hitler tortured people and experimented with them, he finally allowed them to die. 
But God, no, not God. He's going to keep those deathless souls alive for the purpose of seeing them writhe and scream throughout eternity. So the, that's what the theologians claim. Not only is such a picture a misrepresentative uh, a re- misrepresentation of, uh, of God's love, it also distorts His justice. I mean, think for a moment about the implications of a doctrine that would consign every lost soul to an immediate, never-ending hell at the time of death. Suppose a man died 5,000 years ago. Okay? That's a long time, isn't it? 5,000 years. He had one cherished sin in his life. His soul would go instantly into the fire to be tormented for eternity. Then, picture another death. Let's say that of Hitler. What did Hitler do? He supervised the deaths of millions of people. According to this doctrine today that's popular, his soul also would immediately enter hell to suffer eternally. But the man who was lost because of only one sin will burn 5,000 years longer than Hitler. How in the world is that just? It contradicts the, the Bible statement that each one must be punished according to his works. That's what the Bible said. There are two extreme views in in circulation today concerning the punishment of the wicked. It's very interesting what the devil does. He runs you into one ditch or the other, see? Because the truth is in the middle. You're on the road of truth, and then he's got the ditch to the right and to the left. And this is what he he has on this. He's got one that's called universalism. Have you ever heard that? It contends that God is too good to allow anyone to be lost. The other is this doctrine of endless torment, which would, you know, perpetuate for all eternity that dark abyss of anguish and suffering, you know. But both of them are wrong. The truth does lie between. God will punish the wicked according to their works. He will not immortalize evil in the process. I truly believe that most honest souls, many honest souls, have been turned away from God because of this revulsion. Uh, that this mis- misrepresentation of his character has, has been taught. They can't love someone who would arbitrarily keep evil people in endless torment with no purpose in view. No rehabilitation is possible. Only a vindictive spirit of revenge could be served by such unspeakable, an unspeakable arrangement. When you read the Bible, is God like that? No, He's not, friends. He's not. Someday soon, God will have a clean universe. All the effects of sin will be banished forever. There will be no sin. There will be no sinners. There will be no devil to tempt. It will be just exactly like God planned it in the beginning. John described the future home in these words. Revelation 21, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So God says here, He says, crying and pain would be no more. Do you believe His word, or do you choose to believe man's word? Just four verses before writing this promise, John described how the wicked would be cast in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15. He says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Passed away, he says. That lake of fire is right here on planet earth, according to Revelation 20, verse 9. But notice that this place where the wicked burn will pass away. And God will recreate the earth. The new Jerusalem descends before that fire, devours the wicked, and afterwards, according to verse 4, there will be no more sorrow, pain, crying, or death. And in order for no more pain to exist, there can be no eternal hell existing either, friends. The two things are mutually exclusive of each other. And we should thank God every day that His plan will finally bring an end to suffering. Satan will not be here to cause pain, and God promises that His new kingdom will not even contain a shadow of pain. Praise the Lord. And finally, we should rejoice that hell was never intended for you and me. Did you know that? Jesus said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what he said. 
No one will be lost because he sinned, because the Bible says everyone sinned. No one will be left out of heaven because he lied or he stole or he committed adultery. Did you know that? The only reason anyone will be lost is because they refuse to turn away from their sin and turn to the arms of a loving Savior who stands ready to pardon and cleanse from all unrighteousness. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth, that means commit themselves to Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. So friends, I've thrown a lot at you today. I pray that you study to show yourselves approved. And allow Jesus to forgive you and cleanse you by filling your heart with the unquenchable fire of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is you will live forever with Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you so much for your Holy Bible. Its word is truth. We are thankful that it answers our questions. It clears up uh, these counterfeits that Satan has thrown out to deceive the people. And we thank you so much that the Holy Spirit has taught us the truth about this eternal burning hellfire, this unquenchable fire. And Father, help us as we study to to show ourselves approved and to, to be led into more and more truth. Help us, Lord, to share it with those who are in confusion and show them Jesus by our words and our actions. Please continue to be with us today in the days ahead. May we be found faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.